Welcome to Pairing, a podcast about pairing wine with art and pop culture. This week, we will finally be discussing an oft-requested topic, Australian wine. I am so sorry that it's taken me so long to get to talking about the wines of the Southern Hemisphere in a little bit more depth, but I have lots of episodes lined up where we'll be talking more about Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and South America. Apologies up front to our Australian listeners for butchering both your geography and your accents. Very sorry about that. We're just grazing the surface here with Australian wine, as Winston and I get a little derailed talking about one of our all-time favorite movies, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. We talk about how the film, apart from being one of the most badass and impressive action films ever made, is just masterful at storytelling. We discuss how it's feminist and how it treats religion in a patriarchal society, and there are some crazy fun facts that I found out in doing some research for it, and we had so much fun talking about it, and so I hope you enjoy it as well. Just a couple of things before we get going. First of all, Thank you so much to our newest patrons, Serena Ortiz and Emma Makinen, as well as our advanced, aka producer-level patron, Mara Zobrist. If we were being chased by a terrifying patriarchal cult leader through the post-apocalyptic outback, we would want you in the war rig with us. Serena and Emma are both connoisseurs, meaning that they've joined us at the $5 per month level, which means that in addition to having access to blog posts and audio extras, they will receive one personalized pairing from me per month, either for a work of their choice or a cocktail-slash-beer pairing for something we've already talked about. If that sounds cool to you, come on over to patreon.com slash pairingpodcast and see what kind of rewards await you. Thanks to Serena, Emma, Mara, and all of our other patrons, we are just $11 away from reaching our second goal of purchasing better audio editing software, and it would be so awesome to get there before our next episode in two weeks. Next, come check out our brand new Pairing Podcast Facebook group. Thanks to a listener suggestion, I finally got around to making this group, where you can engage with other Pairing Podcast listeners, share your thoughts on our pairings, ask questions about wine, talk about art and nerdy things, whatever you want. I can tell you firsthand that Pairing Podcast listeners are some of the best people in the world, so definitely come check it out. There's a link in the show notes that will bring you right there, so easy peasy. Lastly, thank you so much to everyone who has left us a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a few minutes to leave us a review, but it makes such a difference. Even if we're not exactly sure why. Anyway, if you can find a moment to hop on over to Apple Podcasts, there's a link for that in the show notes as well if Apple Podcasts isn't your podcatcher of choice, and leave us a nice review, that would be tremendous. Without further ado, here is episode 15. Australian wine on the Fury Road. We're recording now. Um, it's been a long time since you and I have recorded an episode together, Winston. It's true. It has been a while. We've I've been releasing a lot of episodes with us together, but right. But in terms of us recording here in the studio with Queen, who's yeah. here. But I'm really excited for what we are back in the studio today, tonight, today, to today, today, to today evening, to today in the evening, to uh, to talk about because this is something that 
has been oft requested now and it is Australian wine mm. and I had a really hard time thinking about what Australian art to pair with Australian wine or what art in general I guess it didn't have to be specifically Australian but I kind of wanted it to be I was like going in a, into a deep dive like looking into aboriginal art which is still something that I want to investigate and do an episode about at least one episode about but but then someone on Facebook was like you you do know that Mad Max is Australian and I was like <laughs> Duh. oh you mean oh the best action movie ever? <laughs> so we're we're specifically going to talk about um, Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Yes, because so vroom, we. Vroom. Sound effects by Winston Shaw. So I'm going to hand you this glass of wine. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And I'm going to take my glass of wine, and we're going to cheers. Very nice. Because it sounds pretty. And so this is, and what else could we drink but Australian Shiraz? So as I've talked about previously on the show, Shiraz is the same thing as Syrah. So when you hear me talking about like French Syrah, it's technically the same grape as Australian Shiraz, but they tend to be very distinct. How are they different? Well, traditionally, Australian Shiraz is a lot more juicy, jammy, like... Mm. Lots of black pepper and spice, but like really high in alcohol yeah, this and is really, really full bodied. This is definitely, but this is like this wine. I really, really like this. Is my I would I would say my favorite Australian Shiraz that I've had under twenty dollars a bottle. This is the MWC or I believe McPherson Wine Company. Ooh, we've got a little Mouvedre in there. Yeah, it's got five percent Mouvedre in there. Nice. And I like that mostly because it's fun to say. Exactly. Um. That's that grape that I've said before. Um, if if you say Mouvedre to a French person, they will correct you. Morvedre. Morvedre. Um, <laughs> so. Morvedre. But it's it's really really nice. I highly recommend seeking this out. Again, it's not that expensive, and I think it's delicious. And it's being made a little bit more in that kind of European style, which is why I think I like it so much because Australian Shiraz can be like really juicy jammy. But this one has all the things that I think Australian Shiraz should have. Um, you know, it's it's got that deep blackberry, black cherry, plummy fruit to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's got a little bit more of a savory quality as well, like a leathery black pepper spice to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what is characteristic of particularly Australian Cabernet, but you also get it in a bunch of Australian Shiraz, is a kind of eucalyptus note. It's like a little kind of herbal sweet kind hmm. of note to it. It's it's pretty light in this one, but I had the MWC Cabernet, and it's very pronounced in that. And apparently, fun fact, that has something to do with the proximity of vineyards to actual eucalyptus trees in Australia. Hmm. But yeah, if you're if you're blind tasting um, for, you know, if you're going for the court of master sommeliers or your W set or whatever, um, or just for fun, if you get a kind of eucalyptus note, that's a big indicator of Australian red wine. Ah, so, little eucalyptus, eh? Little eucalyptus, eh? It's like do my horrible New yeah. Zealand accent. <laughs> you know, it, the points for effort. Points for effort. <laughs> 
Um, and so this, so I, I do want to make a disclaimer that uh, Australia is one of the wine regions that I know the least about. Um, I do, you know, I've had a bunch of Australian wine, but not a ton. And I just don't know a ton about the different subregions and what their difference is. But I've done a little bit of research. And so we're going to kind of talk about that during this episode. Um, but so we are specifically going to talk about Mad Max Fury Road, directed by George Miller, which came out about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there was a trilogy that preceded it with Mel Gibson shot in the late 70s and 80s. Um, I don't like to talk about Mel Gibson. So. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm going to taste this wine, so carry on. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I am of the opinion that Mad Max Fury Road is probably one of the best, if not the best, action films ever made. Um, it's also pretty high up there on the list of best films ever, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, the things I'll list really quickly that I think are amazing about it. Um, the plot moves at a breakneck pace, but um, you never feel like you're getting left behind. The movie manages with maybe less than 15 seconds of exposition. Yeah, there's like zero exposition. <clears throat> or the way it's conveyed is just not yeah. in the... It's visual, it's yeah. in you know dialogue that... You know, all the dialogue serves a purpose. Every single line in the film, there's no fluff. There's no, like, gristle or fat on the movie. Sorry, I can't keep a metaphor straight. But um, <laughs> also, um, I have nothing against CGI. I think especially it's it's gotten so good recently. Mm-hmm. But this movie does not lean on it at all. There's maybe a couple of shots they, where they have I some was, CGI in there. Maybe a couple, but the... And I think, you know, obviously, like, some of the explosions and stuff. Mm-hmm. But one of the only main pieces of CGI um, that was used on a consistent basis was Charlize Theron's arm, because obviously she does have a full left arm. Right. And Furiosa, her character, one of the best female role model characters of the past, at least of the 21st century. Charlize Theron is quickly becoming my favorite action hero. 100%. She's, she is amazing. We loved her in Atomic Blonde. Um, And boy, can she take a beating. For real. <laughs> like, For real. Most of the movies she stars in, she gets the snot kicked out of her and yeah. still comes through. Um, not monster, that's much more grim. But also, like, yeah. the design of this movie is stunning. They, I mean, they took the main bad guy, um, Immortan Joe's car, is two Cadillac 1962, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the year, but uh, Coupe de Ville's sliced in half and welded back together. And pretty much every car in that movie was a functioning, you know, handmade piece of art. And uh, I think the shots are all, like, beautifully calculated, both to tell the story and to give you that. I mean, it's not the only post-apocalyptic movie out there by any means, but I think it's the one where, I mean, everything feels deadly and bleak, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, appropriate because pre-apocalypse Australia is a place where most things can kill you as far as I've been told. Um, But this movie, its it's visual tone is super consistent. Um, And then aside from all the sort of technical filmmaking things of the incredible design, I think that it's got a really great message about the relationship between men and women um, and how it has been, how it shouldn't be, and how it could be. Well, um, what's really cool to me, and I'm, so I, I I Googled Fury Road before 
before doing this, mm-hmm. while we watched the movie last night. Yeah. And I found out some really cool, fun facts about it, including the fact that um, Eve Ensler, who is a playwright, who is a feminist playwright, yeah. was... She did the vagina monologues. She did. She... Um, Among other things. She was a consultant on set for most of the shooting of the film because so much of it is so sensitive and deals with right. women's well, bodies and and the relationship between the uh, kind of vicious brutal patriarchal society and and how it values or doesn't right. value women's bodies and they wanted to talk about treating women like objects without treating women like objects exactly. because I feel like so often Hollywood yeah. movies will be like it's bad to objectify women now look at Megan Fox's butt yeah <laughs> yeah know? and there's definitely a, a lot of scantily clad women in this movie but the way they are dealt with and the way they actually have character arcs um is I think really really well done and I, it, and I again, agree with no wasted dialogue you know yeah like, and so that just leads me i just want to yeah go out i'm sorry really... I, keep, I just get excited no so no no, no. me too me too me too i just wanted to point out really quickly part of the reason why i wanted to choose this wine is that it is you guessed it made by a female winemaker in australia um her name like that we've just kind of picked that up from the spirits girls and shoes and <laughs> what what the, the the air horn oh boop, 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 boop. i also i have a couple of co-workers who like have the air horn app on their phone oh, and i man. think that's obnoxious when yeah, they when probably. they yeah but i you know whatever I, I strive in always to be like uh, Shubes and the Spirits Girls and the people of Multitude, the podcasters of Multitude, because they're amazing, amazing people and great podcasters. But um, the winemaker for this wine is Joe Nash. Um, and the the wine company itself is about 50 years old, but she took over, I think, in 2011, I want to say. And she's kind of young and hip and up and coming and I think this wine is terrific. And I actually, I've had their Pinot Gris as well. I really enjoy this too. Me too. And it's a little more fruity than the kind of red wines I normally like. Um, yeah. As you may have gathered by now, dear listeners, I, I like the Tempranillo. But this has got some of that pepper and, and salt and, and a little grittiness to it. Well, At the I same think, time, it's got nice acidity. And... I think this is a Shiraz for a Tempranillo drinker. If okay, that... no. Yeah. <laughs> um, a Tempranillo drinker's Shiraz, if you will. Um, but it, it is made with, I think, the intention to be a little bit more subtle than most Australian Shiraz at least has the um, reputation of being. Mm. So um, a couple of big names of Australian producers. Here we go. And I think I mentioned this before, but I might not have. But this, this wine is coming from Victoria in Australia. And Victoria is actually the wine region in Australia that is sort of most south, except for Tasmania, which makes some wine, but not a lot of wine. So is Victoria in that southeast kind of quadrant of of Australia? Yeah, so this is Victoria. Oh, okay. I will link a map in the show notes and description. Is Victoria a different province than New South Wales, or is it... New South Wales is up here. Okay. Victoria is down here. So now I'm just gonna I'm gonna list these provinces yeah. and which are also wine regions. I know Queensland is where is where Melbourne is. Melbourne. Melbourne. Melbourne is there. Um. I'm so sorry to all of you Australians <laughs> listening. I have a terrible Australian accent. Hey, you know what? 
we had to put up with Russell Crowe doing fake American accents for the last 30 years. Russell Crowe does a much better American accent than I do an Australian accent. Well, that may be true, <laughs> but still most of you Commonwealth people, when you do an American accent, you tend to sound like John F. Kennedy. Well, I mean, it seems like at least when it comes to men, uh, Commonwealth actors do um, like non-Commonwealth accents um, or non-Commonwealth Western accents um, in one of two ways. They either sound like John F. Kennedy or... It's kind of the way Max talks in Mad Max. Yeah. Russell Crowe does this a lot, like in 310 to you. You know, he likes to do yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, yes, listen, you show me where the girl the is. You're Wayne. not getting the money. It's the John Wayne yeah. or the John F. Kennedy. Pick. Yeah, John Wayne, John your, F. Kennedy. Do, do your... But John F. I mean, John Wayne. I guess John Wayne has a slightly that's, that's different. His own thing. But and you know who does have a great accent, actually, a non Commonwealth accent, is Charlize Theron. Who herself well, is from South Africa, right? She is from South Africa, but at this point she speaks with an American accent. Really? Because she's just been she's just, for so long. Yeah, she's been for so long. And I think, she, I, I forget, I read an article about it at one point. She's like, listen, I'm from South Africa. I've lived here. I've lived there. I've, And as like part of my identity, I've decided I'm just going to adopt this accent because I feel like I'm American yeah. at this point. I think I think that's what she said. I recall at one point Arnold Schwarzenegger actually had to take lessons with a dialogue coach in order to not lose his accent. Yeah. Because it had become so distinguishing both yeah. for his um, film career and as a politician. Yeah. It was like one of his, you know, if he all of a sudden started sounding too American, I think he he thought he would lose money because it would throw people off. For sure, for sure. Um, but anyway, I keep derailing the conversation. Please anyway, well, it's a show plow, of tangents. Plow a, ahead. It's a show of tangents. But anyway, we're going through the Australian wine regions. So there's New South Wales, so that's on the eastern part. That's where Sydney is, I believe, right? right. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah, Sydney is right there on the coast. Um, so New South, Wales, New South Wales, kind of the biggest winemaking region and region this is all new south wales oh and that's queensland up there so wait where is melbourne melbourne is right there oh melbourne's in victoria yeah oh with apologies uh to our australian friends i'm so sorry australian friends i'm really working on it by the way i really want to visit your country like super bad and go ahead (laughs) i've I've got like several tangents lined up on the tarmac let me get through all the white regions (laughs) okay okay so we've got new south wales we've got victoria We've got, this is the most confusing one, South Australia, which is not as south as Victoria is. Um, so South Australia is kind of the most prestigious winemaking region in Australia because the Barossa Valley is there as well as the uh, Eden and Clare Valleys. Um, so Barossa is the most famous winemaking region for Shiraz and for Cabernet Sauvignon and a lot of the big names that you see like Penfolds come out of the Barossa Valley Um, and then in the Eden and Clare Valleys you get uh, more Riesling which is kind of cool and then and then last but not least you get Western Australia which is that's where Perth is right yes I believe so so anyway so those are the major very large winemaking regions in Australia. And we're drinking this one coming from Victoria, which is not necessarily the most prestigious, but it's kind of a cooler climate where where this one is coming from, which seems counterintuitive because it's further south. Hmm. But actually, if you think about it in terms of latitude and longitude... Oh, yeah, like man, where is Australia wait, in relation to the equator? So That's hang on a second. This question. is also 
something I had to know for the intro psalm exam. And so the reason why there's like a certain part of the world, the reason why we've got uh, Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere wines is because between, between 50 degrees and 30 degrees latitude is optimal winemaking. Huh. That is changing because, because of climate change. Because of climate change. But in general, that is why. So like in, in the Northern Hemisphere, Champagne, I believe, is the furthest north winemaking hmm. region. Though it's creeping up more and more. Like there are now winemaking regions in England and stuff like that. Um, and then in the Southern Hemisphere, I would imagine that Victoria, South Africa, New Zealand. And then like Argentina and, and Chile. Argentina. But Argentina, most of the wine from Argentina and Chile is a little bit further north than that. Mm. But so basically that's that's how that works, which is kind of cool. Speaking of Africa, I found out during my research last night that most of the filming of Fury Road actually took place in Africa. And you said Namibia, right? I believe Namibia, yes. Yeah, and I mean... I don't. Yeah, Namibia. I, I kind of understand why they didn't film it in the outback because the palette of the desert in the movie is mm-hmm. so like so... clean and consistent. It looks like Lawrence of Arabia or something. I mean, I think the outback would have looked great too, but uh, they needed that that idea of just like nothing. And the idea, I think, is also that it's sort of post nuclear holocaust. Right. Right. And whereas the first three Mad Max yeah. films, which full disclosure. I only saw the first one. Yeah, I actually, I've seen, I've only seen um, Thunderdome, like, in hipster bars, you know, mm-hmm. where they, like, project movies on the wall with no sound. Yeah, I think so I've, I've done that. I've, I've seen, seen that parts before. of it a lot that way. Um, Though I did not realize that Tina Turner plays the villain, which in, in we have. In Thunderdome? To, or? Yes, in Beyond Thunderdome, yes. Nice. So we have to watch it immediately. Yeah, we probably, you know what, Amazon Prime has been putting all the, like, 80s action films oh, and yeah, 80s cult there. films on there, so it'd be worth Hit looking. us up, Amazon Prime. Want to sponsor this <clears> podcast? <throat> yeah. Do you sponsor podcasts? You probably don't need to. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we own everything. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Um, but yeah, I mean, and that wasteland aesthetic at one point, and this is, again, like, emblematic of the film's incredible efficiency at one point one of the characters sees a tree for the first time (sighs) in his life and it's this dead tree and they're stuck in a swamp and uh, he's like maybe if we put the rope around that thing and he's all the other people like what thing what do you mean that tree and he's like yeah the tree thing yeah and it's just it's you know it's three lines and it conveys so much about the world which also reminds me um australia when I do make it there eventually, I've I've been wanting to for a long time. This is on my bucket list. Get into one of those truck train things that yeah, you have, where like yeah. the semis go through the outback and they're pulling three or four trailers. Apparently, you can book passage on one of these and just like ride shotgun with a trucker who's probably like on tons of speed, <laughs> just like bisecting the country. Because um, apparently the trucks have to do this because there's just nothing, right? Yeah. There's a, you have to carry like some extra fuel, and they're just and it seems amazing to me because it seems like the closest thing you could do, or one of the closest things you could do to like being on a different planet. Yeah. Um, which totally. I don't think I'm like as much as I want to go to Mars. I'm not sure I'm cut out for a Mars mission. Well, uh, you, know. you, you, we were talking about being janitors. You know, I'd happily Mars. be a janitor on yeah. Mars, but I'm not even sure I would make it, you know, I'd make it there. 
they need podcasts on Mars. And they need podcasters. Probably right? a defense and attorney wine. at some point. And wine. And probably a defense attorney. I think we're up there. I think we're up there. In the, in the... <laughs> we have to get in some, like, Boulder, Colorado shape, though. So, um, so anyway, so I compiled a, a, a list of fun facts about Mad Max. Let's do it. And so I wanted to share those with you. The Tina Turner one is one of those fun facts. Cool, cool, cool. Um, another fun fact that we talked about a little bit last night, but wanted to share on the podcast, is that the um, is this uh, all Beyond Thunderdome stuff? No, but so the so Beyond Thunderdome was the first Mad Max movie made without producer Byron Kennedy, huh. who died in a helicopter crash scoping out locations. Never for, get in a helicopter. Which brings me to one of my favorite uh, film helicopter stories, which, uh, sorry, I, I know you all thought we were done with Lord of the Rings. Never! <laughs> Never! It's the E. Ching, man. Come on. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite stories that is on the extra features in on one of, I think, the Fellowship of the Ring. Apparently there was some location that uh, the cast had to get to. This is shooting the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, they had to get to via helicopter, and Sean Bean was like, nope. fuck that. <laughs> and so apparently... What are you going to do, climb it with your bare hands? And he was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently there is footage of Sean Bean like scaling a cliff, just, just climbing up rather than getting in a helicopter. Turns out, he's smart. Sean Bean dies in movies, doesn't in real <laughs> yeah. life. Sean Bean, our hope for the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to, before I forget... Yes. Um, and I, I do want to hear all the rest of the fun facts, okay. but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the movie's take on religion. Because mm. I think, mm -hmm. especially for an action movie and one that's so efficient, it says a ton about religion... And it does it in a way that isn't like Sam Harris, like mean, bigoted, atheist mm -hmm. way. It's just sort of like it has these two religions. Or I guess like Furiosa's is kind of a pseudo-belief system. They've got like, you know, but it's 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 got its own sort of religion. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they do that gesture where they're going to keep your spirit and remember you and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they have this patriarchal death cult, mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of derived from... Um, a, like a perverse uh, abbreviation of old Asatru or like Viking mm -hmm. beliefs, but it all has to do with dying valiantly so that you can go to Valhalla. It's very Aryan. Yeah, witness me! You know, yeah. like, they, so you can be seen dying in this crazy way so you get to go to Valhalla. And then on the other side, you have the the escaped women and Furiosa, and then later the, the Volvolini, um, and they all have they have this kind of myth of the green place, and that turns out to be false too. Yeah. And so like the or at least it got destroyed. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so like both of these like the the warboy character Knox, who's played by what's his name? Uh, Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt. Um, so he has he has to deal with kind of losing his religion, and so does Furiosa when they get to what's do, supposed do, do, to be. Do, yeah. Do. Sorry, couldn't That's hear myself. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> what, I had something in my throat. Losing my religion. Yeah, I know. That's me in the corner. Right. That's me in the spotlight. 
Losing my religion. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, but so they both have to kind of deal with that, which is another great scene when Furiosa, like, she rips off her robot arm yeah. and goes into the desert oh, and, man. and is, like, screaming. And, and they just, you can tell they just have, like, a boom somewhere or maybe just her, like, wireless that they picked up. I'd actually be curious if anyone's a sound tech, because uh, I used to be, um, or sound recorders. How they did that. How they did that. Um, uh, but I, so, and... A lot of this movie has to do with kind of the red, like they're like both of these religions are kind of false, mm-hmm. or they're at least not fulfilling their promises. Yeah, you know, and how the characters overcome having that taken away from them, and yeah. still go on to be like moral and good characters in the end, I think is, I mean, it's an amazing statement for an action movie to make, especially. Um, I think to get anything sort of like as deep, at least in my mind right now, I mean, unless you're going way back to 70s and 60s, like Dog Day Afternoon and Heat and stuff like that. Well, I mean, that Heat's 90s, but movies that have that kind of deep level that they're operating on, even subtextually, I'd, I'd say Alien and Aliens are probably uh, the best ones, which again, you should listen to my friend Rafael Gamboa's uh, yes. series of YouTube essays They're called The Long, the Long Take. Take. Uh, and his ones on Alien and Aliens are fantastic. But that, so it's got this religion message, and then its whole thing about gender relations is just amazing. It is amazing. And we're going to talk more about that. But since you were talking about sound, I thought I'd bring up my next fun fact, which is the thing I found out last Excellent. night that I told you I was going to wait to tell you now because I think you're going to be really excited about it. Okay. So apparently. Um, I'm reading from the Mad Max Fury Road Wikipedia page, which, as we all know, is, you know, true facts and foolproof, 100%. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, But so sound designer Mark Mangini, or Mangini, stated that he viewed the war rig as an allegory for Moby Dick with a Morton Joe playing the role of Captain Ahab. Ha! What? As such, the mechanical truck sounds were layered with whale calls to provide a more animal-like quality to the truck. Oh my god, that's incredible. When the tank is pierced with harpoons and milk sprays out, the sound of a whale blowhole of whale blowholes were used. For the final destruction of the war rig, the only sounds used were slowed down bear growls to symbolize the death of the truck as a living creature. What? How cool, how fucking awesome is that? Fucking awesome is that? Oh my god. Winston also played uh, Ishmael in our friend's production of Moby Dick, Mm -hmm. which is the first time I saw you. Mm -hmm. It was not the first time I met you. Mm. But, fun fact, our second date, we agreed, I think, mm-hmm. was us going to see Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. So, you know, pretty romantic, right? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> what could be more romantic than the fucking badass guitar mm-hmm. player on <laughs> the, the Duff Wagon? The Duff Wagon, which none of that was CGI. I mean, I think the flames coming out of it were probably CGI. Maybe not. I don't know for sure. They did. They just did minimal, minimal CGI. But that was an actual guy, and the, it, it's just this movie is outstanding. And what it has to, and and what's really cool is like, I think I felt the same way seeing it that I felt, and you, I know you didn't feel this way, but I was young and foolish. But I felt the same way seeing this movie that I felt seeing Three Hundred just for the sheer visual 
spectacle yeah. of it. But that is mostly CGI. Yes, it's the opposite. Screen. Yes, it's the opposite. And I still... It I has nothing but horrible things to say about the yeah. way men and women relate. <laughs> yep. Not yep. to mention yep. it's almost... Anyway, yep. I hate 300 uh, for many reasons. Yes. Uh, Although I do like it as a softcore gay porn film. Yes, that's what I encourage Winston to think of it as. It really just helped. Just softcore gay porn. It really helped me deal. Yeah. <laughs> if you think of it that way, it's just much more enjoyable. But anyway, but Mad Max is just so like visually outstanding and and it seems like like the sound designer the costume designer everyone who worked on this movie was so good at what they do and that that really was incredibly noticeable we were talking last night about what our top five action movies would be mm. and both of us agreed that this is definitely in our yeah, top five if, yeah and frankly i don't i think if it's not on yours then either you have much more esoteric taste in film uh than i do or you're just a dum-dum well um <laughs> well let's let's for fun let's share our top five okay and um and if you're listening to this please tweet at us that sounded like I'm a really old person. Please use the Twitter. Use the Twitter machine and uh, send us <laughs> your thoughts. Um, but uh, hit us up at Pairing Podcast on Twitter or Instagram or Tumblr or wherever you choose to do your social media, Facebook, and uh, let us know what your top five action films are. And for me, because it spans such a wide genre. Yeah, and you have to decide like whether you're going to include historical epics yeah sci-fi fantasy yeah i'm unclear for me it's it's movies that include action and fight scenes but the relationship of those actions and fight scenes to the story are really like help tell the story right and and are really effective right so what what were your top five um, let's see if I remember. I don't have it in front of me right now, but what I said was um, Mad Max Fury Road, Terminator 2, obviously, and of course, mm-hmm. Aliens, which I picked mm-hmm. Aliens over Alien as an action movie because I think Alien is one of the great thrillers. Yeah, um, that's fair. Or that's suspense fair. films, mm-hmm. and I consider them slightly different. Uh, and then Seven Samurai, um, just because I think, again, it's like the action does uh, drive, especially a lot of the end of the film, but mm-hmm. it's just part of a bigger tapestry yeah. Yeah. Um, that I think is oh, really man, incredible. Oh, man, I just thought of another one. And um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. So um, so I brought up last night Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because you'd said something else, and I was like, what about that? Oh, that's true, and... yeah. Also, honorable mention to Die Hard, Starship Troopers, and as I said before, <laughs> Heat and uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Amazing. Um, the one that I just thought of that wasn't originally on my top five, but that we've talked about before, is Kill Bill. I would, oh. I would argue oh, Kill yeah. Bill is... Uh, whoops. <laughs> whoops. Yeah, Kill um, Bill's way up there. Yeah. But but so mine were, I, I definitely also include Fury Road and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Return of the King for me, mm. because I think that counts as an action movie. Um, the Dark Knight and... Yeah, the Dark Knight has been mentioned to me by a few people, and I what think I think one? that that does belong up there. Although, again, as with a lot of Batman comics, I don't see it as much as an action movie yeah, as, as a, like a detective movie that's thriller. True. That's true. It's a lot more like Heat, I think. That's true. Than that's like other action movies. Um, but uh, we, so you had more, right? 
I ha- well, I have one more, but I don't remember what it was. Well, see if you can think about it. I mean, I guess I can put Kill Bill in there since I just mentioned it, but yeah. uh, as I one don't movie, <laughs> Kill Bill. Yeah. 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 Um. Oh, you like uh you you had mentioned House of Flying Daggers like you like yeah, you like a lot I'm more like of the lot Hong of, Kong yeah, wire Kung ballet Fu, stuff. Yeah, I do. I do like um, that a lot. Though though I infinitely <clears throat> prefer Crouching Tiger, yeah. Hidden Dragon to House of Flying Daggers. Yeah, and again, um, there's a lot of uh, like films with showpiece violence that I think are great, but kind of deserve their own category. Like, yeah. it's it seems sort of like a travesty not to put Saving Private Ryan on there, but right. I feel like war movies are their own thing. Right. And, like, historical epics, their own thing. Right. Um, some of them are, like, uh, share this trait with action movies that I've been kind of uh, pondering, um, which is that a good action movie, in my mind, has a lot to do with um, relationships, like there's all, it's not like a guy gets the girl relationship. It's a relationship dynamic. And I've heard some video essay I watched or so, somebody mentioned that Mad Max, all the four of the Mad Max films have to do with like a primal core relationship between people. So it's husbands and wives in the original mm-hmm. Mad Max. Um, one of them, either Road Warrior or Thunderdome, is about fathers and sons. And I mm-hmm. think Fury Road is about men and women just like yeah the the sort of relate or just d- all genders the relation between another them, another big know. theme that i think is important in fury road and also i don't know this is this is bringing up another conversation but this is also something that i was reading last night but another big theme is home and mm-hmm. and when furiosa at the end is no spoilers very injured um, right. and in in dire and in, in dire straits Mad Max kind of holds her and she just goes home. <laughs> and uh and I think that home and the concept of home is a huge theme and I I don't really know but I feel like this is something very poignant to Australian culture, the idea of home and what home is and where home is. Right, and it's a whole country of people who were told to get the hell out. <laughs> and sent yeah. their own boats yeah. and who promptly massacred the inhabitants. Exactly, so exactly. You, you so, guys and the Americans, we're like, we've got very similar dynamics Very, very on. similar stories. The British were like, but, we don't want you. And yeah. the natives were like, hey, what's up? And we were like, we're going to murder you and take all your stuff. Yeah. But but that, that seems like an interesting concept to me and something that I have no real awareness of because I've never been to Australia and it's very, very far away from here. But I have, I have some Australian friends who were talking to me about, you know, the relationship between the sort of Anglo immigrant descendants and the Aboriginal culture that exists still, which is uh, pretty, you know, troubled and problematic, possibly more than ours here, possibly not. I, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, every genocidal history is a beautiful yeah. and unique snowflake. <laughs> uh, uh. I don't know, but it, it's a thing. In their own terrible. It's a thing that life. I, yeah, that I struggle with and think about as I get older. That as when I was younger was sort of like a, more of a concept, and as I get older, I realize it's more of a reality. The relationship between, uh, between colonizers and the colonized. And, you know, indigenous cultures just totally being snuffed out. And that's very, very problematic. Because yeah, cultural genocide is a thing, too. It is a huge and it, thing. It, a lot of it has to do with being rendered invisible to the majority of the culture, which 
mercifully growing up in New Mexico was completely impossible for me. You just can't, you couldn't ignore native right. culture um, right. without a lot of willful obtuseness and money. But, yeah. um, you know, some people, it, like Native Americans aren't real to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure the same is true of a lot of people in Australia, you know, and I've definitely, I've heard South Africans talk about, mm-hmm. um, or Afrikaners, not, not South Africans in general, but Afrikaners I've heard say things like, you know, Oh, you know, what were they doing before we got here? Like, we brought civilization. All this, like, conqueror, patriarchal yeah. narrative. Oh, which b- kind of brings us back to a Morton Joe. Yeah. That And because another thing I think this film criticizes really well is the great man theory. Right. You got two main male characters, Mad Max and Morton Joe. And you've also got Nux. Oh, yeah, that's right. You Okay, you've got three. Who, three. I yeah. forgot Nux. But um, Morton Joe... Uh, holds himself out as a savior. He says, by my hand you will rise from the ashes of the world. I am your redeemer. Uh, Not unlike certain political figures uh, who run populist right-wing campaigns. On the other side, you've got Max, who says almost nothing at all and becomes just a collaborator with this group of people. And, you know... And group of women almost exclusively except for Nux. Yeah. And doesn't do anything, but he's like, well, I want to survive. And then the minute he realizes, like, hey, we can survive together, um, he just becomes part of the group. There's no authority. There's no interest in rewards. Like, Nux at one point is talking about, oh, you know, Morton Joe's going to give you all this stuff for getting his, you know, his breeder slaves back. And Mad Max is like, I don't care. I don't care. He's like, yeah. I just want to get out of here. Um, and there's a great scene where he's firing shots out of the sniper rifle and they only have four <laughs> shots left. And then there's like, there's just one and he's trying to hit this guy and, um, he's missed two or three. And so he hands it to Charlize Theron well, and she balances it on his shoulder. And like, and no says, questions. Bre-. There's no, yeah, he does, there's, there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue. She just comes up behind him after he, once he's down to one bullet, he just hands it to and her. And he just hands it to her. I, and one thing we were talking about last night that we think that Tom Hardy does really well in this film, who easily could have put up a, stink and been like well i'm mad max i'm the title role and i'm i'm supposed to be the big important one he yields the show to Charlize theron very gracefully and supports her yeah and i don't think like, it diminishes his presence in not the a movie. bit not a bit like uh, i would i would has probably 30 lines or less yeah like, like i would even though even though technically he's a leading actor i would describe him as a one of the best supporting actors yeah. in this film. And that and that is really, really cool. Yeah. And I feel like things have progressed a little bit since three years ago, and now we're getting more and more movies with, like, women playing badass protagonists. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I know it's always going to piss off the needle-dick nerds who consider themselves <laughs> the gatekeeper of culture, but... The thing is, I think the great man theory of history is really destructive. And I was in a class on fascism and the liberal state in law school recently, and this one super ultra-conservative kid was talking about, like, well, you can't take away, like, the myth of the hero's journey from people. And, like, every man has to go in this, you know, this typical Ayn Rand yeah, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Right? Sorry, you're listening to my politics now. Politics with Winston. But, but... I think that the film... Um, and a lot more films these days are starting to take on this notion of like 
the single hero and talking about heroism as being like small acts. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, but they're a lot of the time collaborative and they have a lot more to do with um, trying to perpetuate life and improve quality of life than the heroic death that the sort of fascist from Umberto Eco's or fascism is supposed to want as like the, the culmination of his heroic journey. Um, which, you know, a lot of the old heroes' journeys have that, too. They have, like, the noble death of the hero at the end, whether it's Beowulf or Gilgamesh or whoever. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's been super destructive, you know, the whole concept of, you know, heroic kingship and all these things. And this movie, again, in a way that never fails to be exciting or feel preachy, just completely shreds that yeah. as an idea. Says just, you, just to clarify, it doesn't feel preachy. No, not yeah, at all. It I'm does sorry. Not. If, the if I the said phrasing it, was a little oh, sorry, confusing. Bad phrasing, I, I, but... I understand what you meant. But... Um, yeah, anyway. I, that's This has been uh, a patented uh, Winston Grant <laughs> trademark 2018. Uh, yield I don't think you said Nazi once, so. <laughs> <laughs> Did I mention the bad guys are probably Nazis? Well, it's funny because I brought that up last night and you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. I was like, you hadn't thought about that? <laughs> So, just to bring this back to wine, because oh, yeah, wine. that's, in theory, oh. the point of this podcast. Speaking of wine, is there any more than wine? Or yes, we there is. It? I think there's a little more. Uh, your, your wine education uh, segments are my time to sip wine. <laughs> also, you just heard me unscrewing this. It's screw cap. Even easier. There um, you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and so, what I was going to... I was just going to try to bring this back a little bit to talking about to talking about wine and talking about Australian wine. And what was really interesting to me, I was doing a little bit more research on Australian wine last night. I mean, I'm familiar with it and I've had a lot of Australian wine, but I don't know a lot about the history behind it and kind of the culture behind it. And that's usually what interests me most about knowing about a wine region. And I'm excited to delve into it more. And I'm excited to go to Australia because we're definitely going to go sometime soon. What was I thinking? Oh, yes. So... Shiraz is obviously the most famous grape coming out of Australia. But what a lot of people don't know, and I think Chardonnay is the second most planted and produced grape. But rather than Chardonnay, I think the other grape that's really distinctive in Australia is actually Riesling. And I think I mentioned this to you last night. I was like, that's really funny to me. Like Australia, or I'm sorry, Shiraz and Riesling are kind of the most different wines in the world. Um, Shiraz and Riesling? Shiraz and Riesling, because Shiraz, traditionally, you know, big, earthy, juicy, jammy, red wine, high in alcohol, high in, not necessarily super high in tannin, but usually has some tannin to it, and is just, like, really big and really intense. And that is especially that style is very indicative of Australia. But then you've also got Riesling, which is a white wine that is incredibly high in acidity and can be vinified sweet or dry, but has this like searing acidity and minerality to it. And they're both really intense. I, I, I kind of think the most intense of flavors to have in your mouth, if you will. Um, but in entirely opposite ways. So I thought that that was really interesting and I thought that that could be interesting uh, to relate to Mad Max about this relationship between men and women. Um, and, you know, I mean, 
And again, that's quite binary the way that the movie treats the relationship between men and women. But I think it's about gender relations more fundamentally. Yes, I. Um, no, I agree. I just I just wanted to point that out, and I really commend George Miller for um, all he did to make the movie incredibly feminist. Yeah. And and he really was very very intent on that and wanted to do that responsibly. Uh, which is why he brought Eve Ensler on and did not want Mel Gibson anywhere near this movie. Yeah. Well, and the, the costume designer, who I think was the only member of the cast or crew to actually win an Oscar, because um, she gave well, an Oscar. I thought, I thought, they, won, Oscar I thought they won a bunch. I did think, they win a bunch of I think they design, won a bunch of technical visual awards. awards, yeah. But she was a woman, just. Yes, um, and also I think that his wife edited the movie. Awesome. So, fact checker Emma from the future here. Mad Max did, in fact, win six Academy Awards of its ten nominations, including George Miller's wife, Margaret Sixel, for Best Editing. Now, back to the show. So anyway, I think I think he did a ton responsibly. And, right. and he's, brought... a, he's addressing a problem in Hollywood that the film is tackling. And, you know, I love yeah. it when meta stuff like that yeah. happens. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And, you know, you were saying, like, you know, the, the, the breeders, quote-unquote, the five women, um, they're certainly scantily clad but it doesn't feel sexualized it feels it feels yeah. like they're dressed that way because they were forced to dress yeah. that way and it's it's never like a I think point a, in the movie it's not a plot point how you know there's a reveal of them at one point where they're all kind of like it's like the classic 80s like they're all drenching themselves in water from a hose and I think yeah. it's the first time you see all of them like outside the war rig and it's interesting the way the movie deals with it because Knox is like, oh, look at them. They're so shiny. Like, well, once we once we recapture these objects, you know, we can get whatever we want. And Mad Max has no interest in it Mm-mm. at all. <laughs> he Mm-mm. is about survival. He does not care with whom or how. He just wants to get away from these crazy and... people. And the women then, they're the, like, shining white of their skimpy outfits kind of becomes covered in dust yeah. and becomes less and less important and it starts to get more practical like one of the ladies starts wearing like a, part of her thing is a hood mm-hmm. um, yep and it's yeah, I do think like each one of those characters is individuated in a really really cool way absolutely absolutely um, and what was I thinking oh yes just coming back to how good a job I think Tom Hardy does he does a good job in the way that like a stage manager in theater does a good job. You don't notice it unless they fuck up. Right. You know? And he doesn't. And he not, doesn't. He does solid. not fuck up. He is solid, but he is understated the whole time. He doesn't steal yeah. the show. You know, he's not He's not yeah. overacting. He's just kind of letting it be. He's doing his Tom Hardy thing yeah. where he's like, well, you can barely understand anything I'll say. But, right. but, but, but the, I was the, born in the wasteland. <laughs> I was born in the wasteland. You believe the world is your ally. <laughs> but... But even so, I think it's one of my favorite performances of his and the fact that, well, it's also like, you know, in, um, in Dunkirk, mm-hmm. you don't, I, you never I, see his face. Till you never see his face till the, I the end no of the movie. I had no idea it was him. I, I <laughs> knew it was him because I could recognize his voice, but, um, but it wasn't like, oh, we've got Tom Hardy playing this character. It's yeah. just like, you won't know until right. the end of the movie that it was Tom Hardy the whole time. Yeah. But but anyway, it's that classic actor training thing where, you know, there's obviously a million different techniques. But one of the tips I was given was that if you as an actor, you know, and maybe you're not method, maybe you are whatever, Meisner, Stella, whatever you do, mm-hmm. 
if you as a person, as like a professional, as a worker, as a partner in a scene, if your objective is to make the other person in the scene with you look good or the mm -hmm. other people, you will be delivering a good performance. Yes. If you're, if you are like fully present and engaged and your whole And you're thing, giving. Yeah. And you're charitable and you don't use every minute you can to make it about you. And instead your performance is about the other people that are with you. You will have done a good job. And I think this is like the classic. Absolutely. Version of that. Absolutely. By and being so understated, he ends up with all the more gravitas. Yeah. You know? And uh, not to give it away, but the final shot of the movie of Charlize Theron and the remaining women r being raised up on this platform and she's just looking down at Mad Max and they and he just nods to her and walks away. Yeah, they and both I'm just like, nod at each other and he yeah. disappears into the crowd. And it's and it's it's awesome. It's really really awesome. And and you know, it's 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 very indicative of I think, you know, like nope, I don't need glory for this. Right. I I did this because it was right. When I think it's um, also talking to the audience because Mad Max is like our scene uh, or our lens yeah. into this world and at the end of the movie you as the viewer are not supposed to feel entitled to the world of Furiosa or to the women or to mm -mm. anything else. There's no prize at the end. Mm -mm. It's like, you saw this. We hope you grew. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now leave. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think that's a, a great way to tell stories. I agree. Um, I think it's a masterful piece of storytelling. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. And Can I go on one final tangent? One final tangent. You okay. got it. So there are... Um, a great deal of parallels between the war boys of Mad Max Fury Road and the space orcs of Warhammer 40k uh, yes. by Games Workshop, um, who are also called war boys huh. um, when they're fighting. They have like shooter boys, chopper boys, war boys. Um, that's you know they haven't mastered the technology of the letter R yet. So that instead of saying war, they say wah, mm -hmm. and they have something that looks exactly like the duff wagon called a wah wagon, mm -hmm. and it's you know drums and and things like that. And one of the things that I thought a little bit more about after last night was that um, a conceit of the orcs is that they're fungal, um, and they sort of grow. They grow like fungi. Uh, sort of like in that scene where the uruk are being like pulled out of the tar uh -huh. pits or whatever. Mm -hmm. but they have, Always bringing it back to Lord yeah. of the Rings. But right. they have this immense psychic power. And things, technology, um, that they could never build works because they think it should. Whether it's a mm -hmm. gun or a car. Like they're painting flames on the side of their vehicles will actually make them go faster because the orcs think it should. And the reason I say all this is because the War Boys and Immortan Joe's whole kind of society to me speaks to that same dynamic of like, we have no idea how any of this stuff works. You know, like maybe Knox and some of the other drivers have like a little bit more knowledge, but it's not maybe. like they could necessarily build one of these. They're just kind of ad hoc, like whatever we can do. And I, I think that is kind of commenting on, on our society where like, as a consequence of capitalism, we become ever more specialized and we're forgetting how things work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these post-apocalyptic movies end with kind of the Marxist message of like going back to basics. Yeah. Like learn how to grow a plant. Yeah. You know, learn how to change a tire. <laughs> learn learn yeah. how to carve something or cook something. And I think that's one of the little forms of resistance and 
heroism that we can all kind of engage in uh, together is like learn something, take a little yeah. time to figure out how something works, and and you know be curious, be curious and, of and ask just, questions yeah, and advances. Yeah, and and if anyone has knowledge that they're willing to share with you, like be grateful for snap it. Snap that up like gold. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, anyway, that's thus concludeth my final tangent. <laughs> Famous last words. Um, so I just wanted to close this out just by recommending some of the more famous, I guess, producers of Australian wine. I mentioned earlier Penfolds, and specifically Penfolds Grange red wine is one of the most famous Australian red wines that really put Australia on the map in a big way, and in terms of, like, fine wine. There's D'Arenberg, Jim Berry, and Peter Lehman. All of these are quite famous. Notice they all sound like men. And so I'm very excited for women to become a part of the mainstream scene in Australia. They, they probably are, and I just don't know about them yet. One cool wine that I thought about opening tonight but didn't is a wine by Master Sommelier from Boulder, Richard Betts, and his wife, Carla, who uh, they, they have a project in Australia, and they make a Grenache, and they make a white blend that's mostly Semillon, and it has a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc, and I have a bottle of that wine. It's quite hard to find, and so I was almost going to open that tonight, but it didn't feel quite right. Um, and so the red blend is called Suset, which um, they, it means, I think it literally means lollipop, but the slang is blowjob. But they didn't know that when they named it Suset. But then they just kind of ran with it. And so when they started making the white wine, they decided to name the white wine Nishon, which means tits. So, uh, but they're, they're awesome wine. Richard and Carla are awesome, awesome people. You should check out their My Essential Wines. Uh, they're not Australian, but they work in Australia. And they do, they, they really are some of the best best people in the wine world so i highly recommend seeking out their wines and with that i think you know i mean as with everything i think particularly with mad max we could talk about this forever mm -hmm. literally forever kitty would be like let me out <laughs> she's just been cleaning herself like, oh the yeah whole time. yeah she's having a good bath but i think this is a good place as good a place as any to end it yeah. and so winston thank you for sharing your expertise uh, you mean my uh inane ramblings yep then yep that too you're welcome yeah cheers. cheers pairing was created produced hosted and edited by emma sherjarko with music and audio recording by winston shaw and logo artwork by darcy zimmerman and katie hewitt if you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, 
please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, read, drink, and be merry. Thank you.